And Father, we continue in worship and we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for Jesus, your son, and that we get to behold him. We're thankful to be together this morning as our community continues to improve in its percentages and virus reduction. And we're thankful that uh, you are with us, that you are omnipresent. Your Holy Spirit is always here. We don't have to invite you in, but we know that you are here and you are with us and you are one with us. We pray, God, as we look this morning at your word, that we would truly behold him. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome here, everyone. If you're just joining us online, my name is Pastor Jeremy Lobdell. We're super excited that you're still tuned in. We have a seat for you here at Midland Free if you're ready to come back. We're still doing a little social distancing and stuff, but we are excited to be coming back together again in person, live, all together. So welcome here. Uh, We're beginning our summer series in the book of Mark. Uh, We've been doing this throughout several summers and just enjoying journeying with Jesus as a family. Our mission and vision at Midland Free, we want to uh, be a gospel-centered family that moves one step closer to Jesus every day. And we're going to do that by enjoying God, embracing his word and engaging our world. And what better way to move one step closer to Jesus than to look at what he teaches in the Gospels. And so we're working through the Gospel of Mark. We'll do chapters 12 and 14 this summer. And then we'll pick it up next spring where we'll follow the both the seasonal path and the scriptural path of um, the passion leading into Easter and Holy Week and redemption and resurrection and such. So Today is Mark chapter 12. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along with us. Oftentimes, I like to dig in pretty deep to a word here or there and explain its meaning. But today, uh, we'll be looking at the 12th chapter of the book of Mark. The title of the sermon is Marvelous in Our Eyes. The subject that we're talking about is redemption. And what we will see are three things about redemption. Number one, that God has a plan. Number two, humanity rejects that plan. And number three, that God redeems rejection. If you remember nothing else from today, just get that part. God redeems rejection and it is marvelous in our eyes. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Jesus is telling a story and he says this. He began to speak to them in parables And a man planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower. And then he leased it to tenants, and went into another country. And when the season, that's the harvest season, came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. And again, the landowner sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Finally, at last, having nothing better to offer or no one, nothing more he could do, he still had one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent them to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, ha, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him 
and they threw him out of the vineyard. Now, what will the owner of the vineyard or the father of the son do? Well, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And then Jesus quotes the Psalms and says, Have you not read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. What we're talking about here today is a parable or a story that Jesus told. Now, just for kicks, and this is something you should be proud of, I want to ask the question, are there any paras in our midst today? Are there any parapros or professionals working in the school system? All right. I see one hand, maybe another or two. Um, Essentially, here's my little tiny deep dive for today because someone told me they like some of this stuff. Um, A parable comes from the Greek word parabole, which para is alongside, it's a preposition, and bole is a story. So essentially, this is a story that comes alongside. If you're a parapro, you get this because often you're assigned to a specific person or individual or group or class, and your job is to come alongside and help them throughout the day. The parable is a story that has um, both real world elements and spiritual aspects tied right alongside to it. It's a parallel story. So I want to point out a few of those things today, but before I do, I want to just give you the macro, and then we'll get into the micro. So I'll start with the big picture, and then we'll move in a little deeper. And as you can tell in this context with the people in the last verse, verse 12, what's happening, if you haven't been following our Mark series, is that Jesus is coming into a lot of confrontation. Like previously, you know, he's doing these amazing miracles, and he's healing people, and folks are starting to get excited, but the more folks get excited the more the rulers and religious authorities and powers that be get upset. And so as he experiences increasing opposition, knowing what his calling is from the Father, he has to time things just right. And so rather than full-on confront everybody and everything right now, he's being a bit cryptic or hidden or mysterious. And that's one of the reasons for a parallel story or a parable is because what it does is two things. If you want to write this down, you'll come across these more and more in the scriptures. Reveal and conceal. Reveal and conceal. We need to be very careful about what our image of Jesus is in modern America because we paint him only one way sometimes. But there's two sides of the coin. One side is, yes, he'll reveal himself to those who are willing, but to those who are not, he will conceal Reveal and conceal both. And that's the point of a parable is for those who are opposing and antagonizing. He's like, hey, this truth is not for you. Many are called, but few are chosen. That's what he says in in the other gospel that tells the same story. Here's the point is the parable to those who are seeking, to those who are interested, it, it reveals mysterious, hidden, spiritual, deep truths. But to those who are hostile and antagonistic, It cloaks or hides them. 
Which one are you this morning? Are you seeking after Christ? Do you want to know him? Do you want to grow one step closer to him? Or are you resistant? Holding him at arm's length. Skeptical. And cynical. This parable is for those who have ears to hear. Let them hear. So here's the big picture. Okay, let me give you the macro picture. The macro picture, the big story is this. There's a landowner. There's a landowner, there's a creation, there's an investment, and there's a vineyard. Let me show you a little slide of what this, how this plays out. Well, actually, I'm sorry. Let's hold that slide for just a second. Let me show you the big picture, and we'll go to that slide here in a little bit. But the big picture is this. If you think about this story, this parable, and you think about creation... The creation epic, the grand picture of humanity, they parallel each other, I think, almost exactly. So in this story, in verse 12, there is a creation. A man is making a vineyard. There's a creation. He's going to invest in it heavily. He plants the vineyard. That costs money. He um, builds the fence. That requires labor and effort. He digs the pit. He builds the tower. He's setting up protection. He's setting up the ability to watch and observe it. He really, 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 really cares about this investment, this creation, this vineyard that he's making. So much so that he's not going to leave it alone, but instead he's going to put some people there to represent him, these tenants, these stewards of the property, So that at the proper time, he can come back and reap his just rewards. That's the big picture. Now, so too in creation, if you're a Christian and you've read the Bible before, you've probably read Genesis chapter 1. The same is true. God creates this creation. He invests in it heavily. And he puts stewards or image bearers, those things we call us, people, humanity, there for the purpose of returning back to him his just rewards. That's the big picture. That's the plan. That's the overarching idea. But as you know, because you are human and I am human, even though there is often a plan and a very clear path for our life, what do we do? We push against it. We resist. We attempt to go the other way. The human tendency has become particularly clear these last few months. I was speaking with another pastor. These are not my words. This guy is a a district overseer in the EFCA. And we were processing our experiences with COVID. Because for everyone it's been different. But for pastors it's been pretty interesting. Because we never anticipated the amount of resistance that we would experience from our congregations. That's not just our congregation, but that's other congregation. I mean, I've talked to pastor after pastor. We have these Zoom calls, and it's the same across the board. And what this district director told me is he said, hey, look, all this does is reveals our inner rebellion. All that COVID does has revealed our inner rebellion. We are rebels by our fallen nature, and we rebel and sin to prove it. You tell people to do something, they don't do it, You tell them not to do it. And what do they do? They do it. Of course. That's the way we are. You know, it's like the tag on the mattress. Ha ha ha. I'm a rebel. Cut it right off. You know, that's just the way we are. 
we rebel. We're broken. It's in our DNA because of the fall that happened at creation. Adam and Eve rebelled and all their children after them do the same exact thing. We see that in this story. In particular, I'm going to, so now that we talked about the macro, I'm going to dive into the micro, the individual elements of this story, and then we'll pull them back and look at our story. So in this story, in context, the religious leaders and authorities are opposing Jesus. And Jesus tells this story with several players. He tells the story of the vineyard and the landowner. And I want to bring up this slide now so we can kind of make it pop a little bit. Can we? So there's a landowner, there's a vineyard, there's tenants, there's visiting service, and there's the landowner's son. Now in this parable, in this parallel story, the parallels are these. The landowner is equivalent to God, right? God owns the world. He created it. He made it. It's his. The vineyard, this special spot, this group of people is called Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. The tenants, the overseers, the religious authorities or rulers, the Pharisees at that time, and scribe, a scribe in this passage, and the visiting servants are these prophets that come along and try to bring God's message, but are rejected. And then there's a landowner's son, last and certainly not least, Jesus. These are the players in this parable. Um, I want to give you a couple examples of Old Testament prophets. For example, Jeremiah. He is rejected. Let me read you just a couple of things that happened to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was put in stocks, chapter 20. He was imprisoned, chapter 32. He's beaten and thrown in a well, chapter 37. He was falsely accused and cast into a cistern to languish in the mud, chapter 38. And he was bound in chains, Jeremiah chapter 40. John the Baptist, who came right before Jesus as the last Old Testament prophet, was beheaded. And so when Jesus looks at these guys and he begins to present them this, he's saying, look, God the Father is displeased with what you are doing. You have rejected all of his servants, all of these prophets. And now Jesus is essentially saying, Jesus, not me, Jesus is saying, I am the son of God standing right here before you. Well, that's a big claim. Some people will accuse Christians or Bible believers of saying, well, Jesus never said he was the son of God. Mark chapter 12. This story, I think above any other Bible story, clearly illustrates that point and more so the most important point is that if you reject Jesus, you've rejected the Son of God. What Jesus is doing by comparing himself to this Son in this passage is he's saying, look, the Son, the sending of the Son is unprecedented. Yeah, there were prophets before, and they were really important, but they were just servants. They were not of the Father. But now the son himself has come. There is an absolute finality about it. Like there is nothing better or bigger or more important or more special that the landowner has than the son. This is his single most valuable, most important thing. And he's sending that before you. What do you want to do with that? Moreover, the authority that the son has is exactly the same 
as the father. The son is the legal heir. The son is the executor of the estate. The son has power of attorney. The son has the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you want to say, it's the son's. Like he can walk in and he can command and things happen. That's what you see in the miracles. When Jesus walks on water and feeds the multitudes and casts out demons and heals people, whatever he says happens because he has absolute authority. There's nothing or no one anywhere that can limit his authority because he is the son par excellence. And that's a big theme here in Mark. As you watch, if you chase that word, if you study that individual word authority all throughout the book, you'll see it in constant confrontation. But Jesus is saying here, look, verse 20, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus said to them, all authority, like all, like every single possible authority there is, is given to him. One commentator says it like this, says Jesus has been giving comprehensive sovereign authority over the entire world, the whole of created order. Jesus is the boss. Jesus is the son. And when he shows up on the scene, the very th- worst thing the tenants can do is reject the son. Now let's bring it into our lives a little bit. Think about it like this. In the story in verse 12, verse 9, Jesus asked the question after the son in the story has been rejected. And he says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy. What will the owner, what will the father do if the son is killed? What will the father do if the son is killed? He will come and destroy. Let's bring it into our lives. Rejecting Jesus is the single most terrible, horrible thing anyone anywhere ever can do. There is no sin worse than rejecting Jesus. Any other sin on the face of the planet can be forgiven. But rejecting Jesus, if you do that, there's no hope. What will the Father do if you reject Jesus? He will destroy. There is no clearer gospel call, I think, in all of Scripture than this. You know, Jesus himself says, you know, any other sin can be forgiven, but blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What's that? Blaspheming the Holy Spirit means rejecting the Holy Spirit's message that Jesus Christ is the only begotten son of the living God. The single most important decision you have to make in your entire life is to accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Nothing else compares to that. This morning, if you haven't accepted Jesus, we want you to be able to do so. We don't want to hide the mystery or keep it to ourselves. We want to share with you the eternal truth that Jesus is the Son of God, that he has all authority, that he came to earth, became a human being, died on the cross for the purpose of paying for our debt, of covering our sins, and rose from the grave. So that the father could demonstrate that this was truly the son. And now he has ascended into heaven and sits at the father's right hand 
where he rules forevermore. That is the single most important message in the entire world. Don't reject that. If you want to believe in Jesus today for the first time, you can do that in your seats right now. Or you can come talk to any of the pastors or elders afterwards and we'll explain it more to you and answer as many questions as we can. But the whole point is this. The single most important decision you ever make is to believe in Jesus. In this passage, it's one thing to get rid of a servant or two. But man, if you reject the son, that's a big deal. Whatever you do, don't reject the son. Now listen, let me encourage you a little bit too, because this is a stark warning. And I tried to do that in like gentle terms, but it's really stark. But here's the hope behind it. Let's say you're here today and you have accepted the son, but you've made a few other mistakes. Well, all right then. And I mean, mistakes are costly and they do mess up our lives. But in some sense, it's no big deal because if you've accepted Jesus, then there is hope. If you reject him, there is no hope. But if you have accepted Jesus, then no matter what, you're on the right path. Sure, you may fall off once in a while, but he's there to pick you up. You may take a wrong turn, but he's there to bring you back. You may stumble, fall, and get hurt, but he is there to lift you up and mend your wounds. When you reject Jesus, there is no hope. But as long as you have Jesus, there's always hope. Whatever you do, don't reject the son. Mess up in many ways, but don't reject him. Number one, God has a plan, macro. He makes a vineyard. He puts stewards. Number two, they reject him. And number three, but number three, God redeems it. God redeems it. Let's look at uh, verse 11 of Mark chapter 12. It says this. You know, after the whole story about the vineyard, the servants, and the son, it says this, that actually, this whole thing, the whole process, this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. It's crazy, it's completely ironic that the sufferer Becomes the victor, the shamed becomes the honored, and the humiliated becomes the glorified. But Jesus says in Mark chapter 12, verse 10, he says, Hey, hey, guys, if you're the experts in scripture, if you're the rulers, if you're the scribes, if you're the authorities on this, have you not read this scripture that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? All along, God knew. All along, God intended. All along, God planned for this to happen. Verse 11 again says, this was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. It is, isn't it? I mean, it's absolutely mind-boggling. This process that Jesus, that God the Father, can redeem rejection. When we think of rejection, we think it's, it's lost, it's over, it's done. But the whole plan from the very beginning was 
the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. In some mysterious way, in the infinite wisdom of the mind of God, his eternal plan involved the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident. It's not plan B. This is God's plan. And, and how else can we say it when we look at it and just say, wow, it's marvelous. Like the preacher is speechless at this point. There are no words. What do we say? But for the fact that it is marvelous in our eyes, look again at the big picture. There is creation. God makes the world. It's his investment. There are tenants. He sets us here to oversee it. There is a covenant that he makes with mankind. We fall. We break that covenant. And as a result, he sends the son of God, an unprecedented messenger with final authority, same as that of the father. And yet, what did we do? Mark chapter 12, verse 8. So we did the same thing that the bad tenants did. We took Jesus. We killed Jesus. And we shamed him. And threw him out. And yet, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Absolutely marvelous in our eyes. Here's the story or the parable of the landowner and the tenants. Don't miss this. There is a plan. There is a big plan. There's a plan in this story for the vineyard. There's a plan in the Bible for Israel. There's a plan in our lives for the creation of the world. But there is rejection. Israel rejected Christ. We reject him frequently. And yet there is redemption. God redeems rejection. Today we're going to get ready to um, commission some important people. Those who are going to be involved in the Royal Family Kids Camp. And I think if anybody knows about rejection, it's got to be those kiddos. Rejected in so many ways. And so I want to encourage you as you go to minister to them this summer to think about this text. And look closely and see how even though the son who is beaten and shamed and thrown out is still redeemed. And see if there's a way that you can communicate that to the kids in your area. That God redeems rejection. Now look, this text, it talks about rejection. So there's an application to make to our lives. We experience rejection all the time. It hurts and it's painful. But it's nothing like what Jesus has experienced. Jesus is the ultimate and this text is all about him. But flowing from him, we can rest assured that he knows what rejection feels like and we have the example of how god the father redeemed jesus's experience we can then ask him to redeem ours as well when you come into rejection when you experience different things think of the story of christ and what he experienced how god redeems rejection and how marvelous it is father we thank you and praise you for today Thank you for your goodness and grace, Lord. Thank you for your love and mercy. Thank you for redeeming the rejection of Christ. I pray, Lord, as we encounter various experiences in life, some affirming, some not so much, that you would redeem them. Thank you for sending the Son. Thank you for his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who hasn't believed in him, they would do so today. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.